following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, nice to see you guys again. Great to be back among the living. For two weeks, I just had this awful hacking cough, and it was a uncomfortable timing of all of it because I had to go up to Wisconsin to speak for an entire day on a couple of Saturdays ago, right when the cough was starting to escalate. And uh, I went to the doctor, and the doctor tested everything, and and then she said to me, well, it looks like it's a virus, so there's nothing we can do, but uh, just stop by the front desk and pay your bill so that we can have the privilege of telling you there's nothing we can do. <laughs> so that's when you go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to give you strength and it's like there, the Lord kind of gives you a window, and the cough seems to be under control. You preach and teach all day Saturday, and you take a big sigh of relief and jump back on the plane and start hacking up a cough again, and it's that kind of a little bit of a window. So the good thing was that we were on spring break, so I didn't have to go into the seminary to work, and so I just got to stay home for the whole week and just rested while I did my taxes. So it's nice to to spend your spring break in uh, 2015 doing taxes. And just as I was getting better, Yvonne uh, had the news that she got called in with a subpoena for jury duty. So we spent another day and a half on our spring break taking her in to to the Justice Department. And of all things, she she was praying that she wouldn't have to serve, especially right in the middle of the school year. But right, right, the last person, the last number 12 juror was her number. So she got called in to serve in the jury. And it wasn't so much the trial of serving on the jury that was the, tr- the challenge, but the big challenge was driving downtown Houston in the morning to drop her off, and that's that's a real pain in the neck. So uh, it was. It's been a really really busy last couple of weeks, and I was telling Yvonne that yesterday I was just so amazed that in our modern day, uh, I could f- I could drop her off at work here at FBA where she's a teacher drive to the airport, fly up to Dallas, have meetings all day long. Jump on the plane and fly back here and then stop by FBA and pick her up. And it's like she never knew I was out of town. And you get all this work done in a totally different city that you live in. And then you go home and say, oh, great, okay, let's get up at 4.30 and head on over to Warrior's Heart. So this is a, this is a schedule that, that the Lord's put us under, and it's, uh, it's amazing. And I, I was thinking about that lesson that we're going to be doing today in light of all that because we have, most of us have people in authority over us who are giving us instructions on what to do. And whether we're capable or too tired to carry it out with precision, sometimes we mess up because what we are asked to do and what directions that we are given to accomplish certain things don't always translate because of either our inability or our miscommunication or because we're just plain tired. So there's, there's probably some evidence of that in these particular portraits that I have for you to look at, where the person who was given the instruction lacked the precision for one reason or another uh, with regard to the instructions they were given. So here's the first one. Paint that sign on the wall so everyone will know that when they can come back here again and have a repeat with regard to their, their patronage to our store. Or a place where it says trust is a big deal for us. Prices you can trust. Long yellow things. 
So someone must have been really sleepy with that. Or I've had some relatives who worked in really busy cities as traffic engineers. And sometimes you have the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And then so you function through this whole process. So this is probably a traffic engineer situation of the lack of precision. So then, of course, the drivers don't know what to do because they're laughing so hard. They, they just, uh, nothing quite registers. And sometimes you try to become so clear with regard to your precision so that people have no misunderstanding of what they're supposed to be doing. Please press green yes button for yes. So sometimes, you know, you just got to repeat stuff for people to be certain of what they're going to be doing. But sometimes for the third party, the obvious becomes the thing that stands in the way of people figuring out what in the world the directions are. Or here, here's one of those things, a label on a shirt. Top Gear, these t-shirts were tested on animals. They didn't fit. So someone must have been feeling a little sarcastic that day and decided that they were going to... Now, some people try to understand what their supervisors say. They try to get the precision down with regard to their instructions. And then they, they just have a, a, a mental challenge with regard to mathematics or something. So today's special, buy one fish and chips for the price of two and receive a second fish and chips absolutely free. <laughs> So, I mean, these things are just priceless. And, and sometimes people are thinking, too, of course, that they're going to help clarify what their boss gave them to do. And the precision of what the boss said probably goes through the process of their mind. And they're thinking to themselves, well, I can, I can probably do this better than what my boss wants to do. So here's a sign this person had done, bottomless pit, 65 feet deep. So there's a, there's a lack of connection there with regard to the mental processes. And this may be one of my favorite ones, of course, because I love dogs. Beware of the dog. The cat is not trustworthy either. So most guys in a guy's group, they would all love this one as, as a highlight. Well, there, there's a great sense where Jesus Christ is practicing an immense precision with regard to the Word. And when God gives truth with regard to the Word... He wants us to understand that these are the parameters, these are the boundaries, this is what's right and wrong, you do this, here's a consequence, you don't do this, here's a consequence. So as Jesus Christ is now engaging the lives of people on the face of the earth, and those who should have known better had jettisoned the truth of the word of God for impressing each other on themselves, and their opinion of one another meant more to them than what God's word or the truth of the word of God meant. And so these religious leaders were now having a tough time with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was patient with him from the very beginning, but eventually it got to the point where they were so hard with regard to their own hearts, they could not even hear the author of the Word of God explain truth to them. And so instead of being humble, admitting that they are wrong, they begin to resist and fight back. And the fighting back against someone who is the overwhelming favorite sometimes becomes the ludicrous picture of what's going on, and you can't even see the clarity of what truth is all about. So we're going to be studying Mark chapter 12, but to look at Mark chapter 12, we have to go back in the context of this particular narrative or the story because of the conflict that the religious leaders were having. So the Pharisees openly challenged Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 28, and they do so by asking a question. And uh, this is an ancient rhetorical exercise. Whenever you want to control the conversation, whenever a conversation might be going in the direction you don't want to go, 
the way you control it or regain control of it is to ask questions because then you set up the parameters and the realm that you want it to be in. So these particular religious leaders had understood this skill of rhetoric or this skill of argumentation, the skill of debate, and they're trying to employ it as they try to engage Jesus Christ and trip him up. So here you have an NFL player against a Pop Warner peewee player, and the peewee player thinks, that if, I'm, if I use all my tricks, I know that I can knock this guy down. So it's, it's that kind of a ludicrous picture that we have. So these religious leaders, with all their pomp and with all their pride, they go up to Jesus, and they question him with this arrogant, judgmental, precise interrogative. By what authority do you do these things? And this is a reflection back on the things that Jesus Christ did with regard to coming in with his triumphal entry and declaring himself by this action that he is the Messiah that was promised to the nation of Israel. He goes in the temple and he cleanses it. And he uses his authority to act as if he knew what was right, what was wrong, what was being done incorrectly. And he disrupts everything that's going on there with regard to monetary change. Well, this offended those who were making money off it, who were many of the religious leaders. And so as a result of that, they questioned Jesus. Where's your authority to do all these things? We know what you did. We're not asking you if you did or didn't do it because that's, that's a foregone conclusion. We just want to know what the authority is that justifies your actions. So this is a Tuesday after the Palm Sunday, and those who were the religious leadership, they are angry because they are now losing not only their income, but they're now losing their respectability, and they're losing their regard among the people. So when you lose the control over people that gives you a sense of position and authority, that's when you get angry and the desperation level starts to increase. I think that whenever you start to lose your authority, because if power and position is where we find our identity, and it's unjustified use of power and authority, when we start to lose that, then we start to become desperate, and then we actually challenge the person or the thing that's threatening the thought power or authority that we, that we have. So when we look at these Pharisees and the religious leaders, they, they are impressing each other, but they really do not have the authority because they've lost their spiritual compass. So when critics uh, don't need the facts anymore to advance their own particular position, they just become very, very angry and loud at the things that they say. And they think because they have said it loudly and with anger, and if no one wants to resist them, because the natural tendency is when you get angry and say something out of negativity, there's a natural quietness or neutrality or an affront that comes from it. And when you kind of sense that after you've expressed anger and when you've expressed this challenge, then you think that that silence substantiates that you are right. Now, that's going to describe our political scene here in the United States for the next umpteen months until the next presidential election is over. So, of course, Ted Cruz is a brother, and and so I only say that from that standpoint. I'm not supporting him politically at all. This is all recorded. This is not a political statement, but it's just a dynamic of understanding how this whole thing operates. So he gives his speech. I listen to his speech, and it's a very coherent presentation, very consistent with the things that he stood for. And then within hours, those who do not like him because of his political position begin to argue against it. But they don't say it coherently. They don't say it logically. They say it with anger. They say it with defamation of character. 
And they think that because they say that with such anger and no one responds to them and there's this quietness of neutrality afterwards, they assume that no one is responding to them so that they're right. Now that's how it functions when it comes down to the area of justification. So we see the same issue here, the dynamics that occur. People who study rhetoric from the standpoint of all the early days from the, from the, the Greeks who stood, on, who stood on rocks and spoke when there was no way to record them. They practiced this particular issue all the time. If you could silence your audience by either anger or raising up, your, raising up the volume and the decibel level, and you get a moment of quietness as a result of your declarations done in anger, you make the false assumption that because no one is responding, then that you are right. Now, that's exactly what's happening here with what the Pharisees are doing. But instead, Jesus Christ doesn't use silence because he wants to substantiate their claim, but he wants them to give a moment to think about what they've said and almost pridefully think we've got them. Then Jesus Christ asks them a question. So here, Jesus Christ takes the same rhetorical technique and turns it against them. So he says, well, I'll answer your question about my authority if you can answer this question first. And he says this about John's ministry. Where did John's ministry, where did his authority come from? Was it from heaven or was it from hell? That's the same kind of question you're asking me. So let me ask you the question of someone that we all historically recognize as a very significant spiritual individual, John the Baptist. So all of them confer. They say, huddle up, huddle up. So all the Pharisees and the Rhodians get together and they huddle up. And they say to themselves, boy, if we say this, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you respond to John? If his authority came from heaven, why didn't you respond? But if we, say to, if we say to Jesus, no, the authority of John the Baptist didn't come from heaven, it came from the other source, then the popularity of the Pharisees and the Herodians would be lost among the people who all recognize that what John the Baptist was doing was really of heaven. So Jesus Christ tricked these guys with their own symptom and technique, and he allows them to realize that they have been inaccurate. So what does someone do who exercises power and influence, they commit themselves to trying to use anger and intimidation to trip somebody else up, and they, they, they receive in response a question about their authority by questioning this individual. Then they play the ignorance game. I don't know. We don't know the answer to that. And that's exactly what the Pharisees do. And then Jesus Christ says to them, then neither will I answer your question against me. And that's one of the more brilliant moments of Jesus Christ from the standpoint of human rhetoric or the human use of language or the human use of argumentation. If you can't answer that simple question about someone that we all recognize as a significant historical figure, then I'm not going to answer you about my authority by which I've done these things. So that's the context as we go into Mark chapter 12. And as we enter into Mark chapter 12, Jesus Christ is now engaging his critics And he's going to uncover for them one of the things that they will not face on their own, and that's their own personal guilt. Those who depend upon and drink in the the influence that comes from power and position, they never think about their own personal guilt in relationship to, to engaging the lives of other people. So Jesus Christ uses this parable and he speaks. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers 
and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Very fair thing to do. Very common and very acceptable thing. But they, that is the tenants, seized him, that is the messenger that the owner sent, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent, that is the owner, another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He had only one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So those who resisted Jesus Christ were now fighting two fronts. They wanted to silence Jesus Christ for the insult that he had given to them. But they also had to fight the front of the popularity of the crowd who loved Jesus, who accepted him. And they did not want to get in a position with a crowd that they were trying to control with their position and influence. They didn't want them to drive to drive them further away. When we look at this particular situation with the guilt that these critics are now starting to feel, something that no one has ever made them feel before, there is this great sense where those who actually hurt others in order to try to maintain their position of power and influence reveal by action their own personal guilt. One of the great pictures of this amazing parable is that guilt is not revealed, sensed, or understood when human beings impress each other with how smart they are or how influential they are or how they as individuals are regarded. And they forget completely about the standards of what God is saying and where he's coming from. I deal with that all the time. I'm in the world of academia, and people are very smart in the realms and the areas that I involve myself in. Some of these people are so smart that no one else really can hold a candle to them. And I know that because that's probably what they're trying to convince me of whenever they read a paper or give an argument. And I understand that. I understand that from a human standpoint, these are really bright, brilliant, smart people. But when their greatest identity is impressing one another with their own intelligence, and they cannot see beyond that to a God who's created them, there's a huge problem in the area of power and influence. And that's my world of academia. In whatever world in which you live, think about that perspective. Are you dealing with other individuals who are driven by power and influence to the point where that is reinforced because of how they engage other human beings with no sense of where they stand before an almighty God who has given them life, given them breath, and can snuff out that life with just a thought. Now that's the problem that we have here, and that's the picture that Jesus Christ paints 
this amazing parallel. If power and influence dries our lives, guilt probably is never, ever experienced because we are always putting ourselves in a position where we are better and more influential in the lives of the other human beings around us. But those who realize and understand that their lives are before Almighty God, they serve with humility, recognizing that every breath they take is part of the grace of God. Anything of substance or significance that we can do, it is part of the grace of God. Well, Jesus Christ gives some clever answers back to these guys who are the teachers of the law, and he overwhelms them with uh, his sense of power. Well, that's, that's not hard to do when you're the master, and the person who comes up is really the novice. So we've probably all been in situations like that when we watch someone who's very good at what they do, and then somebody else who doesn't really have the experience or the depth or the breadth of what your particular field of expertise is in. So every one of us is probably going to be leaving here and going to a realm of where our job is. And it's based upon us growing and gaining capacity in our expertise and experience. And we're surrounded by people who are older, more experienced, who are wiser, smarter, and they have more on the basis of leverage because of that intelligence. But we who are followers of Jesus Christ never have to worry about that. Never. Because our significance is not limited by the boundaries of this world. It is not. We instead submit ourselves to the master who created all things. So here's that one particular topic that's amazing. So they try to trip up Jesus Christ with regard to taxes. If if we pay taxes, that means we're submitting to Caesar. We don't recognize Caesar as the, the head of our nation of Israel. So do we pay taxes or don't we? Well, that's a great time for us to consider that particular issue now, as all of us are probably dealing with our taxes. And uh, so Jesus Christ just is this brilliant answer. Well, show me a coin whose image is on that coin. Well, it's Caesar. Well, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto the Lord the things that are the Lord's. And a very clever answer because they are silent with regard to any response to that. Here's a great slide. The one who knows everything. As we try to function under the watchful eye care of our Lord, he is the one who's telling us that is true or that is false. Don't try to trip up God with our justification of our actions if we are living our lives apart from the standard of the Word of God. And one of the most amazing things about this lesson in Mark chapter 12 is that it is an issue of precision. Who we are living our lives under with regard to the precision by which we say our words, which we live our character, the things that we do, character, conduct, conversation. To whomever we are under submission with regard to guiding those three areas of our life, that precision is a determination of whether or not we are living lives that are significant substantively. Now, there's a a friend of mine who sent me a a wonderful email, and it kind of reminded me of this great idea of what precision is all about, that how we live our lives is not determined by the opinion of other people, but my particular commitment to wherever my loyalty lies. My significance of what I do, even though no one may know my name, the work that I do might be seemingly insignificant to many people, and maybe many people will never even want to do this, but it doesn't really matter because this is my commitment and my devotion to where my loyalty lies. And that kind of precision of my actions and my submission with regard to those precise choices 
that really respects and regards the character that I have as an individual. And it comes down to this amazing picture of the tomb of the unknown soldier. And um, this is a particularly amazing phenomenon. It's not so much because of the, the unknown soldier who, is, who died fighting for our freedom, and we don't even know who that person is, but it's the, the individual who stands and marches as a guard. And uh, these guards, when they go from one point of that carpet to another point of the carpet, it is a precise number of steps. And when they march from one end of the carpet to the other end of the carpet, symbolically guarding the honor of these soldiers who gave their ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, they actually take 21 steps from one end to the next with the same metaphorical influence of the 21-gun salute. So in the military representation of honor, they have this 21-gun salute done with nothing more than the clomping of their shoes marching up and down this carpet every single moment of the direction they go. 21 steps, like the 21-gun salute, going over and over and over again. When he gets to the other end of the carpet, he stops and he does an about-face. And you will always notice that they always change the shoulder in which their rifle is carried on because the rifle is always on the opposite side from where the tomb is. So the rifle stands between any danger of dishonor and the tomb where these particular soldiers lie. And when they take that about face, they pause. And the pause that they have before they march back the other direction is always precise. Not only is it 21 steps precision from one end of the carpet to the next, when they do their uh, about face, they pause for 21 seconds again for the same reason of the 21-gun salute. So each time they turn around, they pause for 21 seconds before they take the next 21 steps so that they can honor these who have died, given the ultimate sacrifice for all of us who enjoy the freedom. Some of the things that are really amazing about these guys is they change the guard every 30 minutes and it goes on 24-7, 365 days out of the year. It's like a 21-gun salute. And I don't know where that came from, so someone from the military could, might be able to help us, but three times seven to 21. Some of the things about this uh, that, that really were intriguing to me is, is that these guys, for the first six months, if they're one of the duty guard members, they cannot talk to anyone and they cannot watch television for the first six months as a guard for the unknown soldier. During their off-duty, they spend 175 people who are laid to rest there in Arlington. And they memorize all of these individuals and where they are interred. President Taft is buried there. Lee Marvin is buried there. Joe Lewis, the boxer, is buried there. Audie Murphy is buried there. One of the interesting things about this story that amazed me is in 2003 when Hurricane Isabel was approaching Washington, D.C., our very brave and courageous Congress, all the senators and all the representatives, they took two days off so they wouldn't have to be endangered by the storm. And because the storm was to be very significant, all the members of the military who were assigned to the guard duty were given permission to suspend their assignments. And their response was respectfully to decline. No way, sir. 
soaked to the bone and marching in pelting wane of a tropical storm, they said that guarding the tomb was not just an assignment. It was the highest honor that can be afforded to a person in military service. The tomb has been been patrolled this way continuously 24-7 since 1930. I don't know a name of a single one of those soldiers. But every one of those soldiers who's done that, I think of precision to a commitment that they have made. And all they do is for 30 minutes they march and guard that tomb. Five hours of every day that they are on duty, they spend five hours preparing their uniform so that there is no wrinkle, no crease, no lint, because they do this to honor the lives of those that they are guarding with this kind of honor. Now, gentlemen, when I read this, I'm thinking to myself, that is phenomenal. Not only are they unknown soldiers who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, but these are probably, for most of us, unnamed soldiers who have taken on this commitment and act with precision because of a promise that they have made with regard to honor. So here we are now, followers of Jesus Christ, the eternal Lord and Savior. He's given us eternal life. And he's promised us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And he simply asks us to represent him and his honor on this day and for every day he allows us to draw breath. The precision of our life based upon our commitment to him as our Lord and Savior. That's what this chapter is all about. Enjoy your conversation around the table. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details... And to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.